0: Hi, everyone. Let's pray before we look at this section of One Kings together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have been teaching us so far through this book. And as Olivia reminded us, we thank you for the way we see your grace here and the way you keep giving Israel the opportunity to repent and turn back to you. So we pray that as we look at this section tonight, that we will once again be encouraged and challenged by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For some reason, I always go for the underdog. Uh, Every team I've ever gone for, you can always tell uh, they were coming last at the time that I chose to support them. That's just how I pick the teams I want to support. Sadly, many of my teams are still the underdogs, even after years of my support. Even during the Olympics, and I know some of the more... Nationalistic members here won't like this, but even during the Olympics, I will go for the underdog against the Australian. So, of course, if we're competing against the Americans or or the Russians, that's all good. I'll go green and gold all the way. But if we're against someone from, you know, Equatorial Guinea or, or Suriname or some country that doesn't even have swimming pools, I'm going for them even over the Australians. I don't care about the medal tally and all that sort of thing. I want the underdog to win. Well today we are meeting the great hero of one and two kings and I would say the greatest hero of the whole Old Testament which is of course the prophet Elijah and Elijah is the biggest underdog of all because Elijah stands up for God when no one else is. Elijah stands true with God's word when everyone is against him. So I think the next couple of weeks are going to be great uh, because we're focusing on this great man, Elijah, first of all. Uh, And my hope is, firstly, you'll just love the story. He really is a great hero. And I think that's the thing with One Kings, and you've probably seen this so far, is so many, even the good guys are hard to love. Not so Elijah, in my view. He's a true hero. But secondly. I'm hoping his story will challenge you and encourage you to persevere in trusting God and persevere in trusting his word, whether it's popular or not. So that's my hope for this next few weeks. But we've got to set the scene for Elijah first. And so my first heading I've called a monotonous cycle of sin. Uh, And this covers all of chapter 14, verse 21, right through to chapter 16, verse 28 now you got to remember where we are so remember the kingdom has been divided into two in the north you have israel and that's ruled by jeroboam and we saw his story last week how he has turned away from god so the sin of jeroboam was idolatry turning away from god and leading the people to worship idols instead So now in chapter 14, verse 21, if you flick back there in your Bibles, the camera shifts away from the north, Israel, down to Judah, the southern kingdom. And you sort of meant to think, well, surely Rehoboam's going to do better than Jeroboam, because he's got the real kingdom. He this is the real land of the promise. Uh, This is the king descended from David. He's got Jerusalem. He's got the temple. Surely he'll do better. But It's like Rehoboam is trying to outdo Jeroboam. And it's a spiral into worse and worse sin. And there is a horrible summary at chapter 14, verse 22. It's going to come up on the screen. It says, Judah did what was evil in the Lord's eyes. They provoked him to jealous anger more than all that their ancestors had done with the sins they committed. There were even male cult prostitutes in the land. They imitated all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. You have to understand just how debauched pagan religion was. Uh, and King Rehoboam, well, he just jumped in, boots and all, with the worst. Of pagan religion and so this whole section chapter 14 through to chapter 16 it gives us the summary of all of these kings of Israel in the north and Judah in the south so I'm going to go through them and they'll come up on the screen I hope you find this summary that comes up helpful it's also on your outline so uh, it'll be helpful for you as you read the rest of of one kings so for Judah Rehoboam he hands over to his son Abijam Abijam hands over to Asa Asa hands over to Jehoshaphat who is perhaps my favorite name in the Old Testament and it's actually quite orderly there's even a couple of good kings in amongst them they're all descended from David uh, and they they do a better job shall we say than the northern kingdom but for Israel the northern kingdom it's a bit more chaotic so Jeroboam hands over to Nadab but then Nadab is killed by Bashar who becomes the king Bashar hands over to Elar, and Elar's claim to fame is he is the drunkest king in history. He was basically a drunkard, and it's while he was drunk, he gets killed by Zimri, who becomes the king. Zimri only lasts seven days before he kills himself, uh, and so Omri becomes the king. Uh, and Omri's dynasty actually lasts for quite a long time. He he was well known outside of Israel. I've got all sorts of archaeological evidence about Omri Uh, and he hands over to his son King Ahab who becomes probably the chief bad guy of the Old Testament. He is Elijah's nemesis and we'll meet him more in a moment. So that's the summary And as I say, if you haven't been reading along before now, please start reading along. You'll find it really helpful uh, with that summary that's in your outline. And as you read it, what you see there is that a couple of the kings do some good things. In particular, a couple of the kings of Judah do some good things, but most are pretty much awful. If if you want to, you know, have a guess on it, they're generally awful. That's the way it works. But what's interesting is that the writer isn't interested in their political achievements he's not interested in what they do in their international affairs he's not interested in in what they do in their building projects some of them were humanly speaking politically speaking some were quite successful and sort of led the country through positive periods if you like but the writer says you can go and read that stuff somewhere else not interested what matters to us is what was their attitude to god that's what matters. Did they live by God's word? And in particular, did they lead the people in following God and following his word? So every time, that's how they are judged. So let's look at Omri, for instance. So Omri is recognized, as I said before, outside of Israel, as quite an influential, successful king. Look at what it says in chapter 16, verse 25. It said, Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did more evil than all who were before him. He followed the example of Jeroboam. You see, from the Bible's perspective, who cares what cities he built? He led the people away from God, and that is how he will be judged. And that is just repeated for good or for bad for each of the kings. And as I read through it, and as you read that line over and over and over again about each of the kings, I cannot help but think of Jesus's parables about storing up treasures in heaven rather than on earth, as I read these summaries of their lives. I can't help but think of Jesus's parables about the stupidity of chasing power and wealth and influence in this world, which will all be burnt away at the expense of seeking God's kingdom and seeking to build up treasures in heaven. I can't help but think of Mark 8, where Jesus says, what good is it to, to gain the whole world, yet lose your soul, lose eternal life? I think this is a challenge to us. What good is a career? What, what good is a house? What good is a, a, a great share portfolio when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, when our life is assessed. None of those things are bad in themselves, but Jesus won't be interested in those things. They won't count for anything. He will ask you, but did you follow me? Did you seek first my kingdom rather than your own? But that brings us to, as I say, one of the worst bad guys in the Old Testament, King Ahab. And what makes Ahab even worse is that he's sort of like an evil tag team with his wife, Jezebel. If anyone was ever into rock and roll wrestling, the tag teams, you'd have a bad guy, and then their sort of other bad guy to go against them. Well, that was Ahab and Jezebel. And between them, they are the epitome of evil in the Bible. They are the epitome of opposition to God. Uh, And we have to meet them and understand them because Ahab is Elijah's nemesis. So he is, you know, Lex Luthor to Elijah's Superman or Darth Vader to, to Elijah's Luke Skywalker, that sort of thing. So our second heading tonight, the heart of evil, Ahab and Jezebel. And this is just five little verses on the end of chapter 16, verses 29 to 34. And and the best way to see how how bad Ahab was is just to read those verses. So come with me to 1 Kings 16, verse 29. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's king Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. That is pretty hard when you've read about all the other kings. This guy was even worse than the others. He made their idolatry seem like nothing. Look at how it puts it down in verse 31. Look at verse 31. It says, then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were a trivial matter. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, what was so bad about what Ahab did? We see Jeroboam and the others, they had allowed the worship of other gods in Israel. And that is evil. That was bad. They had distorted the worship of Yahweh by, by making idols and false altars and wrong practices and setting up priests who weren't meant to be priests. That's evil. But Ahab Ahab totally replaced the one true God with a different God, Baal. And he didn't just do it for himself he then let his wife be the chief evangelist for Baal. But her strategy wasn't to have big rallies and and preach the message of Baal. No, no, no. Her strategy was to kill people if they wanted to keep worshipping Yahweh. See, they set about erasing the God of Israel from Israel. They set about erasing the one true God and replacing him with a false God. And they set about erasing anyone who wanted to worship the one true God. One commentator says it like this, and I think it captures it incredibly well. He says, if Jeroboam's sin is like drinking polluted water, Ahab got Israel to suck on raw sewage. It's graphic, but it captures it. That's how bad Ahab is. Now, before we get to Elijah, I want to just draw out one lesson for us from Ahab. And that is that moments like this in the Bible remind us just how bad sin and our world can be. Sometimes we can look at our godless world with with sin encouraged and evil increasingly called good uh, and God mocked and and God ignored by people who, who our world thinks are smart and intelligent. And we can think, can it get any worse than that? I'm sorry to say this, but the answer is always, yes, it can. It's been worse before, it will be worse again. We mustn't be naive as Christians. We mustn't think our world is just going to get better. No, the reality of living in this world is that sin will dominate until Christ returns. There'll be moments of light where things seem to be going better, and there'll be deep troughs, like the time of Ahab, but while ever our world carries on ignoring the one true God and worshipping other idols, sin will abound. I'm sorry for that that dose of realism on a Sunday night, but that's why we pray, come Lord Jesus. You see, it's not our job to fix this world. We're not going to fix it. Jesus is when he returns. We pray, come King, Jesus, to fix this broken world. But, and here's the word of comfort, even at those lowest moments, God is in control and God is at work for the good of his people, which brings us to the hero of the story and the hero really of the rest of the book of one Kings, the next few weeks for us, the prophet Elijah. So my third heading, God's hero stands up. And this is the story of Elijah in chapter 17. So here we have Ahab, and he's he's setting up his alternate religion. God is being ignored in Israel. And so God sends the prophet Elijah to Ahab, and it's like Elijah comes out of nowhere. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, I stand before him, and there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. As I say, it's like Elijah comes out of nowhere to confront Ahab, and that is all he says. He doesn't explicitly call on Ahab to repent. He just says, God is going to bring a terrible drought. No rain is going to come unless God says so. There's no Ahab, repent and turn back to God and I'll change my mind. It's just a statement of fact, a statement of judgment. And to get what was going on... You have to understand that Baal was the god of rainfall, the so-called god of rainfall. Baal was the fertility god. He was the god the pagans prayed to, to bring the rains each year. And so this is God saying to Ahab, I'll show you the real god who brings rain, or more importantly, chooses not to bring rain. This is God throwing down the gauntlet, if you like, to the so-called god of rain. And the right response from Ahab is obvious, isn't it? Turn away from Baal, who's useless, and turn back to God, and the rain will come. Repent and believe, and God will be gracious to you. God will be kind to you. He has a track record of it in the history of Israel. But keep ignoring God, and Israel will die. Now, we're going to see Ahab's response later over the next few chapters. We're going to see the fight between Ahab and Elijah. But chapter 17 now focuses on us getting to know Elijah. So our second heading in under this section is God's unstoppable word in verses 2 to 16. See, having spoken his word to Ahab, God says to Elijah, well, now head off away into the wilderness and I'll look after you lots of people think this is because Ahab wanted to kill Elijah and so this is why God took Elijah away for his own safety I think they're missing the point I think at this point Ahab couldn't care less about Elijah. he wants to kill him later but at this point it's just some weird tishbite from Gilead who said there's not going to be any rain he's just some crazy prophet who's threatened to doubt no no I think God takes Elijah away because he is actually taking his word away from Israel at this point This is a part of the judgment along with the drought. See, Ahab knows everything he needs to know to sort this out. And while ever he refuses to repent, God will withhold the two things you need to live. You need water for physical life and you need God's word for spiritual life. But while he takes those things away from Ahab and from Israel... God keeps providing for his faithful prophet... So, as I said before, God takes Elijah to a, to a little wadi, a little creek that, that would have run down to the, the Jordan River. Here's a picture of one like it when I visited Israel. We don't know the actual one that Elijah went to. And miraculously, Elijah's wadi kept running even when the others ran out. And even more miraculously, God used ravens to bring him meat and bread every morning and every evening. God is providing for his prophet. But eventually, even that water runs out. And so Elijah travels to a town called Zarephath. And we get another great miracle of God providing for his prophet. Elijah meets a widow at the well. He asks her for a cup of water, which she gives to him. But then he asks, can you please give me a piece of bread as well? And her answer is just one of those heartbreaking moments. Look at verse 12. But she said, as the Lord your God lives... I don't have anything baked, only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. She has nothing to share. She's cooking her final meal for herself and her small son. But Elijah makes her a promise. He says, you make me a loaf with that little flour and that little bit of oil And God will make sure that that flour and that oil do not run out until the rains fall again and there's plenty to eat and drink. And the woman does it. It's a wonderful moment in verse 15. It says, so she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman Elijah and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty and the oil jug did not run dry according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through Elijah it's not hard to see what's happening here. There may be a horrible drought, but God is providing for Elijah. And God is also providing for those who listen to his word and trust his word. Now, what are we to take from this story? Well, the temptation is to jump straight away to us and to say, well, this shows, this shows you how God will provide for you if you are faithful to God. But is that right? It's often the case. It's amazing how God does ensure that we have what we need. And Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. But sometimes we know, sadly, there are Christians who God does not save in this life. Think of all the other prophets who Ahab killed. God does promise us eternal security, but sometimes he doesn't save us in this life. So now this is not a promise to grasp a hold of for every Christian about God's provision for you. God provided for Elijah because at that time Elijah was the one who was taking God's word to the people. See this is actually about God's word. See what this is saying is that God will provide for his word to go out no matter what. The lesson here is that God's word will prevail and nothing can stop it even when things look hopeless God will make sure that his word is doing its work God will make sure that the people who need to hear his word hear it it doesn't matter how anti the government of the day is that cannot stop the spread of God's word it doesn't matter how bad the drought is that cannot stop the spread of God's word God will make sure that his word goes out to those he has chosen and it will not come back empty which actually takes us to the final point, which is nothing can stop God saving his people. And this is verses 17 to 24. So I didn't point out before something very special about this widow. And that is that Zarephath, it's not in Israel. It's in Sidon. It's in the country where Jezebel came from. That is, it's in Baal country. See, this woman was a pagan. This woman would have been a Baal worshipper. She didn't know the one true God. That's why she says, go back and look again. She says to Elijah, as the Lord, your God lives. Not my God, your God. She was a Baal worshiper. We didn't look at the second miracle in chapter 17 before. We read it earlier on. But when her son dies, Elijah brings him back to life. Well, God does through Elijah. It's a wonderful miracle. But it's the woman's response at verse 24 That's even more wonderful. Look there now. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. God is no longer your God. He is God, the Lord. This woman comes to faith in the one true God. All of Israel might have turned their backs on God at this point. But that does not stop God raising up a people for his very own. And that's the point Jesus makes when he brings up this story. He, he brings it up in Luke chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And he says, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day. He's saying he had plenty of widows he could have gone to and done this miracle with in, in Israel when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon see Jesus was speaking to the Jews of his day who were ignoring one even greater than Elijah they were ignoring God's son himself and Jesus is saying if you don't listen to God's word God will take it to others just like he did in Elijah's day and I want to say aren't we thankful for that because we are those Gentiles who Jesus has now offered salvation to. That widow in Zarephath is your spiritual mother. She is your ancestor. See, the point is, even when it looks like everyone is rejecting God, God will keep working to find his people and to save them. And I cannot help but think of the way at the moment so much of the so-called Christian West has turned its back on Jesus, turned its back on God's word. But that just means the gospel is booming in China and in Africa and in South America. Nothing can stop God's word and nothing can stop God saving the people he has chosen. And so the point of all of this for us is... God wins. God's plans will prevail. God's promises will come true. So stick with God no matter what. It can be tempting to look at the world and think, maybe I'm a fool following Jesus. Maybe I'm a fool when everyone else is following Baal, or or actually in our day, the God of self. Maybe I'm a fool sticking with Jesus. Elijah reminds us, do not give up. Stick with Jesus his word prevails let's pray our heavenly father we thank you for the wonderful encouragement it is to see this true hero of the faith the great prophet Elijah and we thank you for the way he stood up and stood up for your word even when everyone else had turned their back on you and father we thank you that that word has now come to us and so we pray that we will know that you win that your plans will prevail, your promises will come true. So help us to stick with Jesus no matter what. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.